Our scripture reading for this morning is from Romans. Uh, it's chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. So it's Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. All right, that's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, folks. So this past week... Um, our kids had a, a spring concert on Thursday night, and maybe some of your kids had, you know, as we get close to the end of the school year, maybe some of your kids had similar concerts recently. Um, you know, so in a concert like this, there's a lot of voices, there's a lot of instruments. Um, so, and as a result, there's all this harmony. Um, and the beauty that results from all of these diverse instruments coming together to play a singular song. So thankfully, it's not all violins, although that would be beautiful. Um, but it's all the better for having the cellos and the flutes and the brass. Um, so together, they can play and sing some really beautiful music. So music that none of them could play alone if it was just one instrument, even if it was a number of the same instrument. So you can imagine a symphony without violins. You can imagine or try to a symphony without flutes or without trumpets or without a timpani. Um, you'd be missing something, right? So the quality, the power of the music overall would suffer if you remove some of those instruments. And that's actually what this passage is all about in 1 Corinthians 12. The church is supposed to play the beautiful music of the love of God. And we all need to play our part in a harmonious way if it's going to be beautiful and the world catch the world's attention um, with the beauty of that love. So we do that by each of us playing our part. 
we play our part by using our spiritual gift or gifts for the good of the whole, um, for the building up of the body, the building of the body of Christ as people are brought in, and the building up of the body of Christ as we grow and mature and help each other um, become more like Jesus. So um, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians as, as a church. It's this series called Cruciform Living. And the church in Corinth was rich in spiritual gifts. Paul says this right off the bat in chapter 1. But they were poor in maturity and poor in the love that enables those gifts to be used for the common good. They needed to grow up. They needed to mature. So if you think about these next few chapters that we're going to be considering in the coming weeks, you have spiritual gifts in chapter 12. You have the love chapter in chapter 13. Oftentimes, you know, you hear that one in weddings, which, okay, it's good. But really, it's sandwiched in between the exercise of the gifts in chapter 12 and the exercise of the gifts in chapter 14. Because if you don't exercise the gifts with love, it's like the, it's like the grease in the gears. There's lots of friction. And rather than building the church up, it can tear it apart. So you can see how these three chapters hang together. This morning we're going to look at chapter 12. Next week, Lord willing, chapter 13 on love. And then two weeks we'll look at chapter 14. Um, so church in Corinth needed to grow up. We oftentimes need to as well. They needed to know some things, and so do we. Um, not merely head knowledge, obviously, um, but knowledge nonetheless. In fact, it's really interesting. In this chapter, it's a big, long chapter, 31 verses, there is no command at all in this chapter until the very last verse. Does that mean it's like, Oh, great, just a bunch of information. No, it's very practical, and you'll see how this chapter is supposed to function as we go along, so keep an eye out for that. Um, so sometimes what we need most is to know something. So let's consider together what we need to know here in chapter 12. Um, let's dive right in, okay? So I frame this out, three points. Um, there'll be, yeah, Three slides, I think, and you can also follow along in the bulletin. There's an outline there if it's helpful to you. Um, so, first point, true spirituality. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. So Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You see how knowledge is so important here? I don't want you to be uninformed. You need to be informed. You need to know something. You know that when you were pagans, literally Gentiles, uh, people among the nations, not Jews, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So what is this little section doing at the head of a chapter on spiritual gifts. So we know that this chapter is all about spiritual gifts, using them as members of the body of Christ for the good, for the building up, the common good, building up of the body. So when Paul wrote to help the Corinthians on these issues, it's interesting the word he chooses um, when he starts off. It's, I'm going to use this because you need to hear what's in these words. So um, pneumaticone, 
pneuma, spirit, right? So when he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, it's not the word charismata, which, you know, charismatic gifts. He uses that later. So why does he, you know, is it just a stylistic thing? Well, pneumaticon can refer to spiritual things or spiritual people. So Paul uses it in this section to refer to spiritual gifts. He'll even use them interchangeably. We'll see it again in 14.1, and it's very clear that he's referring to spiritual gifts. But he's taking advantage of the ambiguity here, I think, at the beginning. So the Corinthians were prideful. They were selfish. They were cliquish. They were divided, and there are certain groups. Some of them you know, appear to have claimed superiority over other groups. So if you read through chapter 14, some were elevating the gift of tongues much higher than they should have. Perhaps this was because you know, ecstatic utterance was present in other pagan cults, and it was associated with being really spiritual. So you could have some in Corinth in the church who overvalued speaking in tongues and looked down on those who didn't. You could also have people on the other side who were worried that tongues were, were more pagan than Christian. And, and what if, you know, in this utterance that we can't understand, they unknowingly curse the name of Jesus? So I think that might be what's going on here behind Paul's introduction like this. He's mainly going to deal with the former, people who have elevated tongues as too important in the life of the church and misunderstanding their nature and purpose and, and the role in building up the church. But he starts off here by making a pretty simple and profound point. People that are spiritual, if you want to talk about spiritual things, if you want to talk about spiritual people, if you want to talk about spiritual maturity, it has everything to do with Jesus. He's Lord. So if you have all kinds of crazy spiritual experience, but it doesn't focus on Jesus, you're missing the point. That's the point, okay? So we know that the Spirit honors the Son. Any use of spiritual gifts that doesn't honor the Son or draws attention away from the Son is not Spirit-led, okay? Truly spiritual people are people who honor and glorify Jesus, the Son of God. So they needed to know that. We need to know that. Okay? Paul wants us not to be uninformed. The Spirit loves to direct our attention away from himself to the Son. So there's this gracious selflessness to the Spirit's work. Holy Spirit won't let us be all about the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean we don't worship the Spirit as the third person of the Holy Trinity, but the Spirit loves to shine the spotlight on the Father and the Son. He loves to glorify the Father and the Son. John Owen said it like this. He said, this is the great work of the Holy Spirit towards the church. He makes Christ glorious in our eyes. So you can think of 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that image from one degree of glory to the, to the next. This all comes by the Spirit. So if we're going to really see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, you can read the Bible and close it and just forget everything that you read. You can hear a sermon that can land on the carpet and stay there. 
but also the Spirit can open the eyes of your heart to see the glory of Jesus, and you love him, and you want to be more like him. That's the work of the Spirit. So the Spirit loves to direct our attention to the Son. It was true in Paul's experience. Remember, before the Damascus Road, Jesus was an imposter to him. He was loss in Paul's view. Waste of time. Persecuting the church. He was focused on his resume, which was pretty impressive. And then... Jesus stopped him, blinded him, had to blind him in order to open the eyes of his heart. And then all of a sudden, everything changed. What he used to consider as gain, he counted as loss. In view of, he saw it for the first time, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord. So is that true in your experience? I mean, there is a world of difference I mean, that's, that's con- that was conversion for Paul, but we may not be struck blind on the road to Damascus, but anyone who comes to Christ, it's, it's, it's a miracle. It's a supernatural thing. The Spirit of God has to open our eyes to see Jesus for who He is, see our need as sinners, see Christ as the sufficient Savior so that we want Him, we trust in Him, we cling to Him with the hands of faith. We have empty hands, nothing but sin that we bring to the table. And we say, I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. I'm in trouble. I deserve your punishment, your condemnation. Jesus died for me. The Spirit opens our eyes to see his glory and his grace and his mercy and all that he did on the cross, and that it can be ours, and we cling to him. And all of a sudden, everything that we used to treasure that was so important to us, just it's meaningless relative to Christ, and Christ is all. So there is a world of difference between intellectual stimulation. You can know a lot of stuff about the Bible and about theology. world of difference between that and the true apprehension of faith enabled by the Spirit, granting us illumination as we hear the gospel or read the Bible. So only by the Spirit do we see glory in what we see. It's like the difference between knowing about honey and tasting honey. You might know about Jesus and have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So if that hasn't been the case, pray today, Lord, I want to know you, not just here. I want to experience that. I want to taste and see that you're good. And even as Christians, it's so easy for us to just kind of keep chugging along and we don't focus on real knowledge and really growing in our relationship with Christ. And we need the Spirit of God to open the eyes of our hearts, to unstop our spiritual ears, to soften our heart so that we really perceive the glory and treasure Jesus above everything else. So it doesn't bypass, the Spirit of God doesn't bypass our mind or normal means of understanding, but there's more than mere intellectual understanding with this kind of knowledge. So the work of the Spirit is to show us Christ, eyes of faith, so that we can become more like Christ. That's this conformity, that's cruciform living. That's true spirituality. So if you want to talk about pneumaticone, if you want to talk about spiritual things, if you want to talk about spiritual people, it's going to have everything to do with Jesus. He's going to be at the center of it. 
Okay? Those who are truly spiritual are Christocentric. Not centered on spiritual experience or caught up with spiritual power as an end in itself, but focused on Jesus. So, remember, there's these factions and superiority, inferiority issues in Corinth, as well as the selfishness and pride, and they needed to know some things if they're going to function like the body of Christ, and we need to know some, some things, same things. We need to know that spiritual gifts are divinely distributed in all their beautiful diversity for a unified goal. So, look at point two, verses four to 11, divinely distributed diversity for a unified goal. Look at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, and here he uses um, charismaton, okay? So he's shifting and focusing on gifts, spiritual gifts. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Do you see the Trinitarian language in this passage. Isn't that beautiful? The gifts and their use is a Trinitarian dynamic. So these gifts come from a diverse, three persons, yet unified, one God, divine source. There are diverse gifts given and empowered for a unified purpose. Okay, in fact, it seems to be... um, there's a reason, I think, why Paul shifts from pneumaticon to charismaton there in verse 1 to verse 4. Have you ever heard the somebody named Charis, like some girl named Charis? Well, that's Greek for grace. Charismata, grace gifts. Okay, so interesting, they're focused on being really spiritual He wants them to be focused on all this stuff comes from God. It's a gift. It should humble you. Do you see, even in just the word play, he's making his point. Okay, so the gifts of the Spirit, they're given to us. Look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. They're given to us not for our selfish ends, but for the benefit of the body. So imagine you own a company. Okay, you purchase a bunch of tools and tech and whatever to provide good goods and good services to your clients. And then imagine your employees are going around using company stuff to line their own pockets or just to impress their friends. You're like, whoa, time out. That stuff was purchased for a purpose. So, here, the Spirit gives us these gifts, not for our own selfish ends, but for His revealed end here, the good of the body, the common good. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, where He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So there's no reason for pride, no right to selfish use. There is a purpose, a reason, a mission for the gifts God gives. The purpose of these manifestations or distributions, we could translate, of the Spirit is the common good, the profit, the benefit of the body. So the Corinthians are very interested in benefit, but not so much the benefit of others. So they need to know some things. 
we can be pretty selfishly oriented, really interested in benefit, but not always the benefit of others. We need to know some things. So I wonder if we might need to be reformed and shaped by the cross of Christ here, just like they did. So again, cruciform living in relation to body life and the use of your gifts and membership in the body of Christ. Paul makes this purpose crystal clear. Um, So he says it here in verse 7, for the common good. In chapter 14, he says it repeatedly. Um, He says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And then later on, the use of tongues when someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. 14.12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So they needed to know that that was the purpose of these gifts, gifts, so that it shaped the use of those gifts in their lives and in the church. So what kinds of gifts are given? Paul lists some here. This is not an exhaustive list. There aren't any exhaustive lists in the New Testament. There's several lists Okay, so one of them Tyler read from Romans 12. So if you don't know what your gifts are, you can read through prayerfully Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4. Basically, that's like a really short, simple list, speaking gifts and serving gifts. And then one other one, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 mainly. So just read through those and see if any of them resonate with how God's used you in the past. Maybe ask some close friends, what, what gifts do you think I have that I could benefit the body? Okay, so that's a good place to start is just to read through the lists and pray, Lord, how have you gifted me? How can I use these gifts for the good of the body? Also, you know what? Sometimes just trial and error is a good way to get, go about it. <laughs> just jump in. And you know what? Maybe you'll find out. Somebody will lovingly say, you know what? Keep your day job. I mean, I shouldn't say it that way. Um, You know what? This actually would be a better fit. Okay. If we're all humble, like, okay. The Lord just directs you that way, closes that door, open another one. All right. So what kind of gifts are given? Verse 8, here are some of them. To one is given through the Spirit. Again, common source. It's a gift the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge. What is that all about? Well, I'll give you my best um, educated guess at this point, but these two phrases are notoriously ambiguous because guess what? They're not used anywhere else in the New Testament. So it's kind of hard to exactly know what they're referring to. We can't go to another passage where they're clearer and that bring it back to shed light on this passage. So, for instance, if you're not aware of this debate, don't worry about it. Just hang in there. The point will be the same. Um, But there are some who believe that the miraculous gifts have ceased, Okay, like healing, prophecy, tongues. They tend to interpret these as the exercise of uncommon wisdom in advising or counseling or leading people and the exercise of uncommon knowledge of grasp of God's truth, okay, for the good of teaching in the church, advising, counseling, that kind of thing. So that's possible, totally possible. 
those who believe the sign gifts continue tend to interpret these a bit differently, though it can include the former. Okay, so for instance, what is a word of knowledge? What is a word of wisdom? Well, let me use a, an anecdote here. So Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher in London in the 1800s, okay? So a couple times this happened in his ministry, even though he was a cessationist, by the way. But in the middle of a message, there were a couple times, and one time in particular, he pointed in the direction of, I mean, this is like thousands of people in London, in this church. He points in the direction of a young man whom he's never met, and he specifically exposed his sin from the past week. He had stolen some gloves, and it kind of like just broke the guy, and it, the Lord used that to save him. Exposed his sin, and I mean, Spurgeon totally was like a theologian with a seatbelt. Like he was not some crazy charismatic, okay? So this is not like the Benny Hinn of, of London, you know, in the 1800s. Nothing like that, okay? This happened more than once in his ministry. So could that have been a word of knowledge, something that he would not have otherwise known? So it was a gift given by the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will, by which someone was saved. The body was built up by addition, and others were encouraged and built up as they saw God at work in their midst. So that's also possible understanding of what word of knowledge is. How about a word of wisdom, okay, or utterance of wisdom? Um, well, I actually think Beth has this gift, so I'll just make it personal, okay? She doesn't know I was going to share this. Um, so most of my wisdom seems to come through study, if I have any, <laughs> which is a natural spirit-guided process, right? Hopefully I'm reading my books on my knees in a sense, you know, She's not a huge reader, although she's reading more, um, but she doesn't have tons of time to study and study and study, whatever. But oftentimes, this has happened over and over again in our lives and ministry. She's counseling someone or speaking into someone's life, and things come to mind that are really helpful. And she just feels like, where did that come from? Again, it's not some magic knowledge, you know, like knowing what's behind door number three. It's just very wise, helpful counsel, need of the moment type stuff. It's wisdom. And she feels like, I, I don't know where that came from, but... So bottom line, however you interpret these things, the bottom line is the same. If you have these gifts, they come from God by His Spirit. So it should humble us. And it should push us to use them for the good of the body, the good of the church. We'll keep going here. The end of verse 8. Well, to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, verse 9, faith. Wait a second, is that just like saving faith? No, it can't be, because not everybody has this. But anybody that's a Christian has faith. So this is not the faith that all Christians have, which you must have to be saved, like, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not of work so that no one may boast. If you're a Christian, you have that kind of saving faith. This is the gift of faith. Okay? 
It's an uncommon ability to believe God for things when there is not a clear promise for God for that thing. So we see it, I think, combined with healing in James 5. Why don't you flip over to James 5? So there's a situation, maybe someone who's bedridden, say, and so they call the elders of the church to come and pray over them. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, 514. It's on page 1013 if you're using the Pew Bible. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save or heal the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he may, he may not have, leading to this, he will be forgiven. So whose faith is that? The prayer of faith. Well, that's one of the elders praying over this sick person, right? So a gift of faith evidenced in a prayer of faith when God plans to give a gift of healing in that moment. So God plans the end, the gift of healing, and he also plans the means in this situation, doing it through the prayer of... So a prayer of faith is, you can't just conjure this up, but you can imagine some elders praying over a sick person, and one of the elders just really senses strongly that the Lord intends to heal this person, and he prays in an uncommon way with uncommon confidence. There is the gift of faith given, and the healing is given. It's all from God, and he uses means. So, this is not just regular faith, okay? It's a special gift of faith in the moment. Gift of faith given to believe that a gift of healing will be given in that situation, okay? But then there's other scenarios, um, where God intends to do something and he gives someone the gift of faith. So you've heard of George Mueller, maybe, of Bristol, okay? So he is oftentimes cited as an example, and he was known around the world, still is, for his orphan ministry. So he lived in the 1800s, but kind of a famous guy um, as far as church biographies are concerned. So he built five large orphan houses and cared for over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. And talk about faith-based ministries, Okay, that, that was a faith-based ministry, if there ever was one. They relied on the provision of God to be able to provide for these children. So he did send a, a newsletter out and let know, people know the needs, but he never directly asked people for money. He just trusted that God would provide. So there's a famous story that goes like this. The children were actually dressed and ready for school okay, in the orphanage, but there was no food for them to eat. And so the house mother of the orphanage informs George Mueller of this. And here's what he did. What would you do in this situation? He asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables. Like, they literally didn't have any food. Not like, well, I guess we're going to have to dive into the rice supply. You know, we don't have any eggs. No, like they literally didn't have any food. So, sit at the tables, the kids sit down. He thanked 
God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide food for the children as he always did. (laughs) Within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow, somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you. I will bring it in. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk. George smiled as the milkman brought in 10 large cans of milk. It was just enough for the 300 thirsty children. So I don't know about you, but may the Lord raise up some more George Mueller people, gifted people for this body, for this region, for this world. All right, let's keep going. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Again, all of this, God gets the glory. He is the one working, doing all of this. Oh boy, okay, healers. Are we, does this mean there are healers? Guess what, folks? There is no evidence in the Bible of healers. You know, Paul, by whom people were healed, even when handkerchiefs or aprons had touched him, were carried away to the sick. I mean, crazy stuff happening in Acts, right? But even Paul in Galatians 6, I'm sorry, Galatians 4.13, he came to the Galatians because he was sick. Like there was some illness and they welcomed him in. He couldn't heal himself. 2 Timothy 4 says, Erasmus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill. (laughs) At Miletus, Paul couldn't heal him. So it wasn't like this once-for-all gift, you could just heal every you know, sick person in your wake. No, not at all. Because both of those words are plural. I don't know why they don't translate it this way. Although gifts is plural, at least that helps. But it's literally gifts of healings. So the whole point is, God can give a gift of healing at one point, and he doesn't later. It's not like this one-off gift. I have the gift of healing, so I can just go around and whack people on the head, and they just fall over and they get healed. No, it's from the Spirit. You can't just control these things. So, by the same Spirit, gifts of healing, by the one Spirit. Verse 10, to another, the working of miracles. You could think of casting out demons. Um, Sometimes that applied to healings. To another prophecy, we'll talk about that in two weeks, so if you can allow me to punt on that one this morning. Um, To another, the ability to to distinguish between spirits, okay, so spiritual discernment. That's a really important gift for the good of the body. We don't want to be led astray. To another, various kinds of tongues, languages. To another, the interpretation of tongues. In fact, in chapter 14, if in the church assembly there's no interpretation, The gift of tongues on its own is worthless because nobody's edified. So the interpretation of tongues actually makes that an understandable message that can benefit the body. Okay, so there's a lot there, but the main points are the central points. 
divinely distributed diversity of gifts for a unified goal, the good of the body, the benefit, the building up of the body. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. The Spirit is a person, not a force. Okay, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one sovereign Spirit deciding who gets what gift. Apportions to each individually as He wills. So all the varieties of gifts, services, activities are given, empowered by one and the same God. The Spirit empowers all these gifts. He sovereignly dispenses them as He wills. So here's the applicational payoff, and this is where Paul goes from here. There is no reason, there is no room for superiority or inferiority in the body of Christ. We need to know that. There is diversity, but it should never turn into classism or a spiritual caste system or anything like that because the diversity is for the sake of interdependence and unity. So look at where he goes in verses 12 to 31, the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 12, the diverse and interdependent unity. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So physical bodies like this, so is the body of Christ like this. Unity and diversity is part and parcel with what it means to be a Christian. The unity, all one in Christ, common good, same spirit, must come to bear on the purpose, the nature, the use of our gifts. And the diversity... One body has many members, all play their part, are not the same, shouldn't be, shouldn't want to be. That diversity must also come to bear on the purpose, nature, use of the gifts. Look how he goes on, verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all made to drink of one, one spirit. So we're all one in Christ, there's no you know, higher, higher class, second class citizen, any of that, we're all one in Christ. So, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So do you see how Paul shepherds them in such a way that no one should have an inferiority complex or think that their gift is not important because it's not like so-and-so's gift? We are interdependent in all better for the diversity. Because, look at verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? We need each other. We need all of each other. Verse 18, but as it is, God, God did this. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. Interesting, the Spirit Sovereignly distributes here God. Like, again, if anybody's wondering if the Spirit is fully God, yes, the way that Paul talks is very Trinitarian here. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? You'd just be this big, weird-looking ear bouncing down the road. That's weird. So listen, folks. We need to know this. We need to embrace this. We need to kind of drink this in and let it shape us. 
cruciform living. Do you have to fight against envy of the gifts of others? We need to hear all of this language of God arranged, God gave. God knows what he's doing. He has sovereignly distributed his gifts according to his infinite wisdom. He's good. He has good purposes for your good gift. Trust him and employ it for the good of the body. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the good of the body and the glory of Jesus. So there's this blessed self-forgetfulness that God is calling us to here. We do not find significance or greatness by looking at ourselves and our impressiveness, even though we fall into that trap all the time. We find significance by fixing our attention on the significance of our Savior and getting caught up in His mission. Right? Remember how Jesus talked about greatness? You know, out in the world, people lord it over others, but it shall not be so among you. This is cruciform living. If you want to follow a crucified Savior, this is what it looks like. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's cruciform living. Cruciform living in reference to our gifts. Cruciform membership in the body of Christ for the good of the body of Christ, for the glory of Christ. So do you care more about your name or reputation than the name or reputation of Jesus? If so, we need to kill that. Do you care more about your comfort or the comfort of those in need of the grace and peace of Jesus? You have that kind of self-centered, comfort-seeking sort of thing? We need to kill it. It is slavery to be focused so much on ourselves. It's freeing to just die to ourselves and live to Christ. For to me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. That's what Paul says. Or listen to this. This is the way we're going to start talking if the cross is shaping us. Paul said in Acts 20, 24, he said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry, serving other people that I receive in the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I just want as many people as possible to, to have the grace of Jesus. So no more inferiority complexes. You and I, we are uniquely, sovereignly, wisely, lovingly gifted by God for the good of the body. Indispensable members. This isn't Costco membership. Oh, I let it lapse. Shoot. No, this is organic membership. If I don't have my kneecap, it's a problem. So no more inferiority complexes, but it cuts both ways. There's no room also on the other side in the body of Christ for superiority complexes. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No superiority complexes. We need to know these truths about the body and about ourselves. These truths humble us even while they lift up the lowly. So each of us is an indispensable member. We need each other. We all need to pull our weight. We all have a job to do. Each has a gift or gifts, and they are wisely, sovereignly, lovingly dispensed by the Spirit. So we need to put the jealousy to death. We need to put the envy to death, the pride, even the self-pity. I don't have any upfront gifts. I feel so weak. Well, look at verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts, yes, he's talking about what you think he's talking about, are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So again, all the parts matter, no matter what they, how presentable they are or not. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So here's this diversity supposed to be woven together in this gracious interdependence, creating a beautiful symphony like unity and harmony. Look at verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So the more you are lovingly connected to and aiming for the good of others, other members of Christ's body, the more your suffering is tied to theirs and the more your joy is tied to theirs. So it's our selfishness. I mean, oftentimes what happened is we are slaves of ourselves shaped by sin and worldly values. We don't want to be bothered by the burdens and suffering of other people. We shrink away from it. And then on the other side, we get jealous at the success and honor of others when we're focused on ourselves, right? But when we put that stuff to death and we live by the grace of Jesus, then when another member suffers, we want to bear that burden with them. When they rejoice, we're rejoicing with them. Like if I hit my thumb with a hammer, my whole body comes around. If I cut myself really bad, my brain says to my feet, get inside, wash that thing off, get a Band-Aid, you know, blah, blah, blah. It would be crazy for my feet to go on strike against my hand. Infection in my hand would affect the whole body ultimately. So then Paul concludes, verses 27 to 31, kind of wraps everything up here. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members, members, organic members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Do you see helping and administrating thrown right in there? They're just as supernatural. Don't, don't downplay those ones. Are all apostles? No, obviously only people that have seen the Lord, like he says in chapter 9. Aren't any more of those. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. So again, it's against superiority or inferiority. Hey, you just take the gift that God gives you and use it for the good of the body. But, verse 31, and we'll look at this one more in two weeks, in chapter 14, earnestly desire the higher gifts why? Well, because some gifts have more benefit to the body. That's why. But then he's going to show us the more excellent way in how to employ those gifts. So, how are you using your gifts for the common good, for the profit and building up of the body? Cruciform living extends to our membership in the body of Christ. We need to put passivity to death. None of us should be on the sidelines. Put jealousy to death. God gave you a good gift for the good of the body that he has planned for you. He knows what he's doing. Trust him. We need to put pride to death. If all the gifts are sovereignly given, there's no room for superiority. 
We need to put selfishness and pride, all this stuff, to death and watch Jesus, the head, raise love to life this more excellent way so that we can each use our gifts for the good of the body. Let's pray. And then we're going to close by singing the body as a closing prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you that you gave your body. Your body was broken so that we could be healed and brought into your spiritual body with you as the head and we as members. And I pray that you would help us to lovingly, humbly use the gifts you've given us for the common good. For your glory we pray. Amen.